Welcome back to the Afros and Knives podcast. I am your host, Tiffany Rozier, and this is an interview series featuring Black women working and leading in food and beverage, hospitality, food justice, and food media. This week, I'm introducing a bit of inspiration in each episode. Today's inspiration is from the incomparable Toni Morrison. This is the time for every artist in every genre to do what he or she does loudly and consistently. It doesn't matter to me what your position is. You've got to keep asserting the complexity and the originality of life and the multiplicity of it and the facets of it. This is about being a complex human being in the world, not about finding a villain. This is no time for anything else than the best that you've got. In this week's episode, I had the pleasure of chatting with former executive chef of Seattle's Mark Queen Hotel and founder of New Orleans Black Brew Collective, Chef Maya. Let's dive in. Well, my name is uh, Maisha Masterson. I am called Chef Maya by mostly everyone. I've been in the culinary industry now for almost 25 years. Um, I got my start with my love of food from my great grandmother's garden. She had a wonderful garden in her backyard and pretty much harvested every piece of produce that we ate in her home from her yard. And that created my passion for not just the culinary industry, but the whole seed to table movement, not only farm to table, but seed to table, like we're planting, we're growing and we're cooking. Uh, Black Root Culinary Collective is my business, and my business is one that combines culinary travel with classes, tours, and a pop-up supper club, and that is a way that we provide immersive culinary experience to our clients and to our guests. I understand that grandmamas uh, or and grandmothers and mamas growing things because my my great aunt had this um, shelf of all the things that she had in her garden that she would just jar and pickle and preserve. And when she and when she passed, um, you know, nobody mm-hmm. gave me dibs on any of that uh, on any of that product. And um, I'm still bitter. I'm still bitter about it. Um and my grandfather at this point, he has his garden that he's, uh, they, my grandparents live in South Jersey. And so he's still out here growing um, what he can. And then my dad, he just took up um, like a, they have a, a pretty decent plot of land um, in that part of New Jersey as well. And so um, him and his wife have just started to kind of like take up a bit more of a structured like gardening. And um, I wouldn't necessarily say uh, farmsteading, but like close. So he's, he's, he planted some watermelon and some other stuff. So absolutely having access to growing your own food. I also Google like growing your own food is like growing your own money. So, I mean, look, and it it just tastes much. I I don't think Uh anyone really understands what that tastes like when you've like plucked a green bean that you have spent all that time, um, growing and and putting it on the table in front of people. So that just, that's an experience. I think everybody at some point should have, um, so for the for Black Rue Collective, the concept for that, especially the travel component, what was why was the travel component so important? Because I know most people mix food and travel and it's not necessarily intentional. They just kind of end up in a new place and go, oh, you know, either they'll try something new more often than not. They will get someplace uh, outside of their home country and try to find something that is similar to what they eat at home. So what was the what was the catalyst or the inspiration behind um, involving uh, the travel component there? Well, I feel that, um, especially in this country, in the United States, we have a plethora of different cuisines that we can try. We can go to a Greek restaurant. We can go to a Chinese restaurant. We can go to a Mexican restaurant. But a thing that happens here in America is that cultures dumb down their cuisine for us. They make it less spicy. They take away some of the flavor. They use American ingredients as opposed to the ingredients Mm. that they use in their country. And so true. Yeah. And so in my own travels, I began to notice that, um, for example, when I went to Greece, I noticed that the Greek food that I had in Greece was nothing like the Greek town in Detroit. Greek town in Detroit, it 
hell to comparison. Nothing, nothing like it. You know, and I'm like, the food was so fresh. It was, um, we have organic food here, but their organic food is standard. So um, even going back to growing our own food, when I tasted the avocado in Greece, I said, oh my God, this is what an avocado should Ooh. taste like. I've never, I never cut open an avocado and the juice ran down my arm like a mango. Not here, Ooh. you know, but there. No, not here. Yeah. Oh, wow. But there, you know, I had this avocado and like my brain just snapped. And it was like, you know, we are as culinary professionals, especially in this country, we have the opportunity to learn from these people, from these cultures. But let's take it another step. Let's go to these places and learn the food from the people where it came from. You know, mm. we want to we want to talk about Mexican food. Let's go to Mexico. Let's let's find us some old Mexican grandmas that are making tortillas by hand and rolling them out okay. with, with a Coke bottle instead of a tortilla press. You know, let's look. look. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Let's go to Italy. Oh, wow. Let's go to Italy and make pasta with these old women instead of you know? learning pasta from some old white man that's making pasta that he learned from years and years and years. You know, they, they dumb down the yeah. cuisine so much. So Ooh, yeah. that's so important to me. It's so important to embrace the cultural aspects of food. It's, mm. it's just, it's just so special. And that it, provided the catalyst for that. It's like, I'm teaching these culinary classes. I have people that I'm teaching like, Asian dumplings too. I'm doing a tiny Chinese dumpling class. I'm doing a kimchi pickling class. And I'm like, oh yeah. Let's take this another level. And let's say if you're taking my dumpling class, why not come on the tour to Japan and we go to these places, we go to a dumpling factory, we go to the street markets and we learn from these people. We eat the food there and then we have a better grasp of what we're making. What I'm trying to teach you with my limited knowledge and I call it limited in comparison to the people there where it comes from. Right. How, you know what, how does that, where do you believe that factors into teaching people about just African food ways and black food ways, especially what we, what we brought to this continent um, as enslaved people. And, you know, like how, how, what would, how would you see or envision, you know, creating um, a tour or creating an ex a travel experience around like those our particular, our food. And, you know, cause we, they've also, you know, we've also managed to have, we've had to, like dumbed down and watered down our own cuisine oh, yes. um, for, for essentially the same reasons, which of course people, you know, think is monolithic and, uh, you know, kind of one note. And, um, you know, and I've always found our food to be, you know, vibrant and full of life and rich and diverse. Um, so like, wh what would you, if someone was to come to you and ask you like, Hey, you know, I don't necessarily want to go outside of the country, but I want to learn more about food that's indigenous to this country, food that's indigenous to, um, uh, the, the enslaved Africans and the native people the indigenous folks who are, who were here before anybody else got here. What would that look like? That would look like, a history lesson more than a culinary lesson to me personally. I, I believe wholeheartedly that African American cuisine that is rooted in um, our ancestors that were enslaved has very distinct aspects that now in this day and age, we need to take a step back from and examine from a health aspect because the food that we were cooking back then, not just for ourselves, but for the people that were enslaving us was heavier, fattier. It was made to sustain us for the backbreaking work that we were doing back then. Mm. And so in going into what we call soul food or comfort food or something like that, we need to take into account that um, that food is delicious. It, it's delicious. It's definitely delicious, but it's not 
something that we should be eating every day. Right. You know, and I think that if I got into that type of class, I would definitely start there. And then, and then I would go into the food itself because we took the way that we flavored food and the way that we we made food in Africa, our seasonings, our spices, the way that we braised, the way that we baked, the way that we cooked, and we bought it here. We used the ingredients that we had available to us in this country. And mm. not just what was available to us in the country per se, but what was given to us by the people that enslaved us. And so we created a cuisine from the what was discarded from the people that enslaved us and so things that have become popular now in this day and age was something that was scrapped mm. and that's that's another thing that's really important i think that would be touched on if i was to do a class of that nature um and then there's the indigenous people who have a completely different cuisine that is not that widespread and people that don't really know about. And um, that's something that I would like to get into. There, mm. There's a, a culinary collective that is in Colorado or Oklahoma. I can't really think about it, but it's a group of native people that are cooking from the land, cooking with fire, cooking in the ground, cooking in fire pits and trying to bring recognition to the food, the native food that has almost disappeared from this country, other than reservations, we don't see it anywhere. True. So true. So true. And we, and it's, a, it's I always find it fascinating. Like the way we managed to combine native um, African and European uh cuisine and really created something new from the three of those like uh, a hybrid of the three and um a lot of the way we eat now is informed by all three of those um and so to kind of like separate them back out again and really be able to step back and examine you know where they you know where they started to mix and where they all started to fit together i just i mean as a as a cook you i have to think about like you know we were kind of the original um infusion uh infusion cookers mm-hmm. and and we were you know we create we actually really created something that hadn't existed before um just like you know us as a people and you know at this point it's just like i think this is why you know black chefs and black cooks are so innovative. Like we can take, you know, I think it's just in us to kind of take what's in front of us and create something, um, create something really unique and authentic and special. And it's just, it doesn't, not that other cuisines don't innovate, but they're not forced to. So we're always kind of put in a position to problem solve. Um, even like down to when you were saying like we had to take what was left or what was given to us. As, and I can't imagine like you're pulled out of your home country. You're brought to a new place. You're forced to labor and you don't speak the language and you are you don't understand the land you're working and you don't know a lot you know you're looking at crops and you understand farming more than the people who have enslaved you you and it's but you're trying to cook them meals that you might not quite understand because you're like we don't eat this way mm-hmm. and to be able to like take that position and still create an entirely new cuisine that you know still echoes through you know the American culinary space now um you know from me i'm just like that just it sounds like who we are as people like we you just like you can you can give us you can give us pieces and we will figure out a way to create something um original from it exactly so it's and it's always incredible to me that you know people they they just discard that they or disregard that they they kind of either don't understand it or they don't find it important and i'm just like you know i think eventually i think people are waking up to the fact that you know with with if we if we left and took everything with us there would be nothing there here there would be nothing there would be nothing behind <laughs> we would be like you know what if we're leaving we're taking everything with us so just understand that exactly. um so the so 
your I I know we had uh, chatted a little before, and you were ta- you let me know that you were working on a nonprofit. And I just wanted to give you some space to talk about your nonprofit and what your what your goals are, what that looks like, um, what your the the mission is, and who you're essentially who you're looking to serve um, with that project. So um, my nonprofit that is in the very beginning planning stages right now, I'm actually uh, running a fundraising campaign. Uh, right now for it, uh, Black Roof Farms. And this is something that I have found to be extremely necessary uh, going into the issues of food insecurity and food sovereignty, especially in the underserved African-American communities. People don't eat right. I mean, that's like the best way I could say it. People don't eat right. We don't as a collective Black people, we aren't eating as healthy as we should be. We still have the highest rates of diabetes and obesity and heart disease and things like that. And it stems, again, going back to early in the conversation, the food that we were given back when we were enslaved people, it's carried on and we don't need to eat like that anymore. And The Farm Collective is something that will provide free or low-cost produce to underserved communities here in Louisiana. And Mm. it will also provide classes, uh, classes uh, geared towards single mothers is what I'm really hoping to go for with these classes. But for single mothers and parents that want to learn how to grow their own food and grow their own produce. Um, I find that uh, fresh organic produce is more expensive and it's more expensive rightfully so because when you grow it, you know how hard it is to keep your garden organic without, mm. without putting any chemicals on it or anything like that. And it's cheaper to grow it yourself. It's not easy, but we can make it easy. And with a collective of people together, community together, teaching these people how to grow and eat their own food, it it can change, it can change us. It can change us for the better. It can enrich our culture. And I'm even talking about, get some chickens, have your own eggs. You don't have to have pasteurized eggs, you know, like even the meat, have a pig or two. You know, so I want to go all the way down to the grassroots of farming and teach our people that we can do this ourselves. The The food in this country is is iffy, especially right now with the current events happening. Um, we have a meat shortage going on, which I learned expressly yesterday when I decided that I wanted to bargain shop for the first time that this meat shortage is only affecting the inner city urban communities. The grocery store where I usually shop is completely stopped. I went to a save a lot over in the lower ninth ward and the store was almost empty. And I was floored because the place where I shop isn't like this. And um, checking my privilege here because I've always been a person that goes for the freshest and the organic and the farm grown and the things like that and realizing that the majority of the people in our community don't have that luxury. And I want to change that. The, um, for the for those who don't understand like the process of of getting something like this off of the ground where are you're in the fundraising stages what is what are you what is that first kind of round of fundraising for um as far as uh like just structurally getting everything kind of pulled together and like figuring out what the what the next steps are and what the next what the what this course of action is going to look like after your fundraising so the first round of Fundraising is definitely going to be for two major aspects, and that is going to be to establish the nonprofit, which um, I learned is a little more difficult than just establishing a regular business because you have to have a board. You can't just be one person and establish a nonprofit. 
So that's going to be one of the goals from that. And the second goal from the initial round is to find the perfect plot of land that's here in the inner city because I want this farm to be urban. I don't want to. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I don't want, I want this farm to be accessible to the people that I'm serving. Okay. And that's very important to me. And Louisiana, especially here in New Orleans, we have a big urban farming initiative that's going on right now. And they offered a lot of grants right after Katrina. And there's a lot of plots of land in the city, like in the lower knife ward, especially like right off of St. Claude, big plots of land that can be used for this purpose. And Mm. we just got to get our hands on it. And I am hesitant to go to big banks for funding because I want us to own this. Yeah. You know, oh yeah. I want I want this to be community led, community funded, community worked. I want to provide jobs to people in the community. I want for somebody to be able to walk or catch the bus to the farm to pick up to the produce box and not have to have it shipped to them because it's in their neighborhood. And that's mm. definitely important for this first round of fundraising is making sure that it is rooted here in the city. Okay. Okay. Is, is, is there any, is there anyone you're partnering with part partner? Wow. See, not enough coffee. <laughs> are you in partnership with girl? Are you in partnership with anyone yet on this idea? <laughs> or um, I was like, Oh, it's pre noon. And I have had about eight ounces of coffee at this point, And that's not nearly enough. Um, are you in partnership with anyone at this point? Do you have like just a few folks that you're, you're kind of like throwing ideas at or who are able to support you, um, not just monetarily, but just even in the, the standing in the planning process that are like local, that are local um, or regional even at this point that can help you like kind of get some, some boots on the ground. I have, I have joined the food sovereignty project very recently as of yesterday. And um, I've been talking with them. Um, Other than that, this is, this is a vision. And since I am not native to New Orleans, uh, I've been here for about six months. I'm still feeling my own way around here. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. And um, with the whole COVID-19 thing, this is where this vision popped up and I Mm. realized that it's a greater need for this now more than ever before, you know, I thought about it being, um, I still had an idea for the farm before the Mm COVID-19 thing, but it was a for-profit idea to be a seed to table supper club. Oh, okay. Okay. But with what's going on in the world and with the food shortages and the food insecurity, having good food shouldn't be dictated by how much money you make or your social standing. Amen to that. And I found a calling greater than myself in my own pockets, and now I'm working on it. Mm. Have you been, I know, like, of course, with like COVID-19 at this point, most of the chefs I know have had to like put a a big old pause on business at this point and, um, and, or, or make an absolute pivot and start to look at some other ways to, to do our work and to, um, and to impact our communities. I think a lot, I've noticed the trend, um, and hopefully it's one that, you know, just becomes a regular behavior uh, as a community is that we're kind of leaning into this kind of the community, the community mindedness and like prioritizing the us over the, the me at this point, which I think it's, you know, will pay bigger dividends in the end. Um, for the farm itself, do you see, are you looking at maybe like a co-op opportunity? Are you looking at um, any type of like, uh, like internships and that kind of thing? Like, how do you see the program growing um, in that way? Oh, I'm definitely seeing internships. Um, I'm also seeing as well as the farming classes doing a structured culinary program for young culinarians who also want to get into the seat to table thing. So I'm seeing culinary classes and I'm still seeing uh, incorporating travel into this by sponsoring culinary travel to 
low-income teens that wish to be chefs. I think that's something that's important and it's something that I wish I would have had access to when I was a younger chef. If if there was some program that could have sponsored me to go to Japan to learn how to make noodles when I was 16, it might have pivoted the way that my business is and my career is now. And so that's something that I'm definitely looking at. Um, Internships are important. Co-ops are important. I also want to employ the community as well. And of course, that'll come later down the line once it's established, but um, it's definitely where I'm looking. Now, you said you've been in New Orleans for about six months. And how did you find yourself? um, How how did you find yourself there? Like, what was the, um, why the relocation? So um, in a different lifetime of mine is what I'll call that. Um, I lived here uh, in the late 90s. And uh, for a brief period in time, I wanted to be in the medical field. And so I came to New Orleans. I went to Diller University, HBCU, for pre-med. And um, I discovered the French Quarter. And that was the end of that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. She's like, we're going to make a swift end to this. Okay. Very swift end to that. And um, I, in being here in those three years, I fell in love with the city. I fell in love with the culture. I fell in love with food. I fell in love with the camaraderie and the just the way the people are here. Like it's it's so welcoming, and um, there's a sense of community. Like people here speak to you. You can be walking down the street and every single person you pass will say hello to you, Mm. you know? And it's like, oh, you guys just moved in. It's like, well, we're moving back. We lived here before and everybody always says, welcome home. And that's, that's something that I I just, I just love this place. And so Mm. when me and my partner met, we realized that New Orleans is both of our favorite cities. He's a musician and I'm a chef. It's a perfect match for us. And so we decided one night that we were going to run away to New Orleans together uh, (laughs) (laughs) after a bunch of drinks. And um, here we are. We did it. That. That is usually when you make the best plans is after a bunch of drinks. Yeah. I mean, you're like, you know what? This idea sounds real good. I'm, I'm, now, where did you, um, where would you, where were you living prior to Louisiana or like in that in between? So I lived in Seattle for 10 years. Okay. And um, during that time, I had a very successful personal chef's business. And um, I had a domestic violence incident. I was in a very violent marriage and I decided one night to pack up everything that I had into a trailer, hook it up to my truck and drive back home to Detroit. And so I drove 2,500 miles with my dog to get away from that. And in that process, mm. I left I left a successful business behind. I left a home behind. I left family behind. I left it all to save myself. There it is. And I went back to Detroit to regroup, reconnect with my family. And um, in being there, I realized that I left Detroit for a reason. (laughs) All right. Look, just tell the truth then. I mean, tell the truth and shame the devil. Look, man. Sometimes you go, oh, this is why I left. Okay. You're right. You're right. A long time ago, I kept leaving. Every Mm. time I went back, I left. Yeah, so I was there for a year. <laughs> Bless you. I do the same thing. I go back and forth to Arizona, and every time I'm there for for about nine months. Once I get to like the ninth mm-hmm. or tenth month, I'm like, "Ooh, this is why I don't live here." Okay, yeah, that's all right. That is all right. But I always end up like going. It's like a revolving door. I just, I just, yeah, we just keep going back, and then I'm like, "No, I cannot go back another time. This is not going to work out." Yeah, I had, I had to heal myself. So going back home to ground and heal and be around family and to receive that love that I was missing since I had been gone for so long was very important. And in being there, I met somebody that made me realize that I could love again. 
And mm. I found that and we scooped each other up and got up out of there. <laughs> All right. All right. And you know what I find incredible? Like the, the, the theme, like that I noticed, like kind of running through your story is this, this theme of healing. And so like even stepping away from medical school and stepping away from that particular career choice, the, that, the, the energy continues to follow you like that, that kind of healing uh, energy continues to follow you. So like anything you've done has kind of had that, um, had that, had that shadow over it. So, I mean, it's amazing that we are always attracted. I think, especially in food, when you start to talk to people about what they've done before they got into food and how usually either the career choice they made before that or the, the, you know, whatever degree they were pursuing in college or um, their, their life choices right before they got into food is still like reflected in their, in in their career in culinary and, um, and it becomes a running theme throughout pretty much everything. It really just helps them tell their story on the plate. So it's always incredible to like get someone's backstory and see how that, has factored into like what they do now with food and around food. Yes. So, um, so yeah, so, so, and I'm like, I can, and I can hear it like all over the, you know, this, this idea about, you know, coming back to the ground, coming back to farming and, um, you know, the, and your reasons for, ma- you know, centering the, you know, that idea of eating better, eating healthier, um, kind of decolonizing our, our diet at this point and, um, kind of, and reconnecting with, you know, how we, originally ate and what we usually eat and, and getting back to that. So now for, for culinary, you said you've been in culinary for 25 years um, and then getting out of medical, getting, stepping away from medical and into food. Like what was that trend? How did that transition look? So I was into culinary before I was into medical and um, I was into culinary at a very young age. I think I had my first official kitchen job at the age of 15. Wow. Uh, And I went back and forth from that. So I I had that kitchen job and I was 15. Then I had a couple of years of um, teenage angst and rebellion. Um, (laughs) I was, I was a stripper for a long time. And um, when I, moved to New Orleans for college, I was coming out of this rebellion and saying, Mm. okay, I was a chef for a minute. I was a dancer for a minute. I need to find myself. And again, another, another time, I think I was trying to save myself because I Mm. I was into some stuff back then, honey. I was into some stuff. So, (laughs) I mean, I think everybody at some point be into some stuff yeah. for sure. So I, I came, um, my mother was looking for some options for me. I was looking for mm. some options for me. She was a member of a Methodist church and Dillard University is an HBCU, but it's actually a Methodist school as well. So since she was a member okay. of the church, I got a scholarship. Mm. And there was a list of schools and I looked at the list of schools and the only thing I saw was New Orleans. And I was like, I want to go there. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, I know, I know the location. That's that's all I know at this point. I want to go there. And I got down here and school was great. It was fun. And then I got into the French Quarter and being that I was a dancer before that and realizing how much money I could make in the French Quarter dancing, I, uh, yeah. So, uh huh. Yeah. Because sometimes your coinage takes precedent. That's all I'm saying. It does. I did a, um, I did a trial night and I made like 1500 bucks in four hours. So, what am I doing here? Why am I? Why why am I even here? So, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, have you have you questioned all types of career choices? You're like, well, wait a minute. Now, look, um, not everybody's comfortable with this, but I, I mean, but there is no other coinage like it. So you know. But um, the amazing thing about the French Quarter back in the '90s is that that industry and the culinary industry were hand in hand. Now, mm. now it's not 
so much as it used to be because Katrina drove out a lot of those old businesses and a lot of those old clubs. But, oh, wow. but back then, there was kind of an unspoken partnership between the performers and the restaurants. You know, it's like everybody knew each other. The doormen knew the doormen. When we ordered food, we ordered food from the restaurants in the quarter. They would bring it into the clubs to us. And I found that love for that authentic Cajun and Creole cuisine while I was here, not actually involved in the culinary scene, but being adjacent to it. Okay. And did you have a specific... um moment where you were just like like that that moment where you go you know what this is something to like that I seriously want to pursue like I wanted to kind of throw a hundred percent of my my weight behind you know getting um just getting serious about my like like my culinary career about my business um you know like when like when Black Rue essentially kind of emerged from, you know, from your heart. Um, You know, what was that? What was that turning point? When I left New Orleans and went back home, it was uh, January 2nd, 1999. I remember the day because it was right after the New Year's celebrations and everything. I went back home to Detroit and my mother was about to get remarried. Oh, wow. And um, I was pretty much broke. I had, you know, came back home, basically ran back home from New Orleans after ditching college. I was back home with my parents. And I was thinking, like, what can I do for my mother since I can't afford to give her a gift? And Mm -hmm. I offered to cater the wedding. And, um... What? Okay. All right. I've never done that before. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's a that's a gift. That is a gift. I never I've never <laughs> done anything like that before. And I just said that's I've always been a great cook. You know, I always made great food. I was cooking Thanksgiving dinners for the family. I think my first one I was eleven. Oh wow. Okay. So I was like, I'm gonna cater your wedding. And my my dad, he's my stepdad, but I call him my dad. Uh, my my dad, who has been uh, a cater waiter for the majority of his career in New York, kept mm-hmm. saying, are you sure this is what you want to do? This is a big job. Are you sure? You know, this, this is something big. And I'm like, oh, I can do it. I can do it. And um, I surprised myself. It was it was amazing. And I Ooh, said, nice, okay. Nice. I said, okay. Okay. Maybe I should go to culinary school instead. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Uh huh. I understand that one because that's that that was essentially like how I ended up making the switch myself. I was in Nashville mm-hmm. and. I was like making, I was doing little small like dinners for like birthdays and things like that. And at some point someone asked me to cater an event that was like, I'd never done that before. Mm -hmm. And once I, and when I, when I managed to pull it off, I was like, that was my, that was my next thought. I was like, well, maybe I should just go to culinary school. I mean, I missed the wedding. I was in the kitchen the whole time. I heard it. (laughs) (laughs) You know what happened, but oh my God, how, how, how many guests did you have? Oh gosh, I don't. It wasn't big. I would say maybe fifty people, maybe a little oh, more. Okay, but, um, so uh, just enough. Yeah, just enough. Yeah. It was a oh my god! Do you remember what you served? It wasn't okay. Um, I do you remember what you served? I did a fruit platter of some sort. I remember vaguely. I did a fruit platter of some sort. I made um individual desserts. And I did a stuffed pasta thing. It was big shelves, like individual shelves, stuffed with this ricotta mix on individual plates with a tomato sauce and a nice little garnish. Um, It was a full spread. It was a a meat platter of some sort. And um, I just, now looking back at it, me now, if I would have saw that spread, I would have just been like, oh my God, what is this? But, uh, 
It was great. It was great. Oh, my God. They enjoyed it. Her guests enjoyed it. Everybody complimented me on it. And um, that was my that was my turning point. That was when I was like, this is what I should be doing. Like, for Mm, real, this is what I should be doing, you know. (laughs) Now, if you had to recreate that buffet, what would you do now, now that you have all that time behind you? (laughs) Oh, oh, I would do so much more. It would probably be, it would probably (laughs) be played. Only 50 people played it. I could do that myself now, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. (laughs) You're like, well, I would have had some plates. I would have had real people play. It would have been played. Oh my God. Um, That pasta dish. It was cool. It was something that I saw somewhere that I thought was beautiful and I recreated it and made it my own. But honey, I wouldn't do that again. She's like, oh, we are not doing that again. Oh, wow. It's incredible, like, how you evolve and you, like, look back at those early, like, those early meals, mm-hmm. those early um, clients and go, wow, what was I doing? I think I was, I, I, think was, I was, like, 19. Yeah, and it's just, like, you just cook to your experience and right. you're just like, okay, it's fine. And it's like, now that you look back in hindsight, you're like, oh, no. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> okay. Um, so once, once you were in Seattle, like for, as far as your food, part, the, the food part of your mm-hmm. life, um, like what kind of clients were you serving? Uh, so when I moved to Seattle, I moved to Vashon Island. And um Again, with this theme of me running across the country and running to save myself and running from my life or to my life, um, I had a, <laughs> I had a lot of that. Um, I'm actually writing a cookbook, and the chapters are broken up into lifetimes about my different, different parts of the life that I was in and why I left and where I was there. But um, I was in Detroit, and I was tired of a certain type of person. Um, <laughs> I was that uh go ahead go ahead and I was just like I want to get as far away from these people as I can right you're right so I looked at the map and I said I'm either going to Maine or Washington the far corners and I, I had never been to Seattle I thought it was a small town I didn't know much about it but I saw this small mm. little island Vashon Island I said this is where I'm going I'm going to stay at the hostel until I find a house. Ma'am, come on. Greyhound. (laughs) Greyhound bus with my little little loggins. That is a commitment. Greyhound to Seattle, got on a ferry, dragged these suitcases behind me, went into this Mm. hostel on Vashon Island, stayed in a teepee that had a fire pit in it. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But while I was on Vashon, I... um, I got the job as a pastry chef at Sound Foods Cafe, which provided the pastries for the Washington State Ferry System. Oh, wow. I had a very good job there. And um, the owners mismanaged and it ended up locking the doors on us, closing down, not telling us anything. And um, I went from there to the Golf and Country Club on the island. I was the executive chef there for a couple of years. Mm. And um, when I left the island, I realized the culinary field in Seattle was completely saturated. It was good on the island, but yeah, outside of the island, not so much. And so I started off with a thumbtack ad. And um, from that thumbtack ad, I just started having clients popping up out of nowhere. That, you mm. know, and they were uh, mostly clients that worked in tech. So people that worked in the Googles and the Microsofts and stuff like that right. because of Seattle. And um, yeah. from there, I got a little bit of recognition and Food Network reached out to me. And I went on Guy's Grocery Games. I won the Halloween episode in, I think it was 2017, 16 or 17. Oh, wow. Okay. And, and so I won that episode. I won $18,000. And I used that to quit the job that I was working on top of running my business and run mm-hmm. my business completely. Nice. Nice. And um, that was great. And I was kind of a local celebrity in Seattle for a while. And hey, 
it was Seattle's a good yeah, time. Man, it was a good run. If it wasn't for that that yeah. crap with my ex, I, I probably wouldn't have left. But look, I, I I worked out on Orcas Island for three summers. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I would fly out to Seattle and like the end of May, beginning of June, get that, get the ferry uh-huh. um, to Anacortes or um, to, to Orcas. And then, yeah. And then the, I would, I was there till like September. Yeah. Like the beginning of September every summer. And um, beautiful. so I understand that. I understand that Island life. Yeah. I mean, it's nothing. It's so unique. Like the Island people who live on those islands are definitely, it's a world unto itself. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, but I loved it. It was, it's just beautiful. It's beautiful land mm-hmm. and it's just got the, and of course farms everywhere. Yeah. Um, and then um, I think at some point we would see like the, the orca whales kind of passing through the, cha- the island chain because it was like the San Juan island chain. And um, we uh, had a neighboring island with a little French language camp, a French immersion camp. Mm-hmm. And so I paid them a visit because they were looking for a chef. And I was just like, oh, I got to commit to be on this island all year long. I don't know about these winters. I don't know about these winters, friends. Um, not that bad. Uh, maybe not. They're not that bad. They're, it's just the people don't know. On this little tiny to, island. People don't know how to do it. Girl. Because honey, I was just like, ooh. Because <laughs> the guy who was there before me, he had built this cold uh, a smoker. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, okay, well, the smoker alone might talk me into staying on this island for a minute. Um, but yeah, I was just like, but I it, I mean, every summer I always, I think about it and I'm just like, okay, I can find another I can find another opportunity like that. And because um, they used to take the kids out on like sailboats for the entire summer and they would um, sail through, sail to Vancouver and then, um into Canada and Canadian waters and then come back and um, at the end of the summer, bring the kids back. And so it was just like really like a really vigorous space, but Seattle is so like that. Washington is unique in that way. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then for um, the last job I had, we had to, we were in Seattle for some um, a little, some training and some management stuff and just being able, being able to be in the city at that point too. And like, cause I usually would come through the city and just be there for the night and then have to head out to the, um, head out to the ferry in Anacortes. But, you know, just being able to spend that time in Seattle, is just like, it definitely is um, a city unto itself. Yeah. And I, I, most of the restaurants I've hit up have always have, I've never had a bad meal in Seattle. And I will say that. Um, but yeah, I understand that principle, like that idea of like going as far in the opposite direction of, of a zip code as I possibly can. And I tell people, I'm like, I think I've managed to live in like six different zip codes at this point on account of that. So um, I understand that life completely where you're just like, you know what? I'm not doing this anymore. Um, I got to go. I got to get out of here. So, um, so yeah, like what's your, I, I mean, it's, it's my least favorite question to ask any particular, any cook is like, what's your favorite thing to cook? So I guess a better question is what are you curious about? Like right now, like what are, what are some of the more, the culinary things or the food things that have gotten your attention? Um, what are you kind of cooking through or are you cooking through anything right now that you kind of keep coming um, back to? Japanese and cu- Korean cuisine are definitely on my radar. Uh, I absolutely love fermentation and um i love making dumplings i love making noodles uh those those long broths that cook for days and days like tonkatsu ramen and things like that i'm really big big into that and i'm also finding my way around vegan cuisine which is uh i just kind of stumbled upon it because of the whole covid thing business has been slow and so i took on a consulting job with a vegan restaurant and um, I can pretty much cook anything, but I am learning innovative ways to do things with plant-based food, which is uh, surprising and enlightening. And I think that is something that the universe aligned me with since I'm working on this farm project. It's like, if you're going to grow things, you're going to teach people to grow things, then you need to be more versed in plant-based food itself. And so that's definitely something that um, right now my, my blinders are set on this vegan cuisine. 
are you cooking through any like do you have any resources that you're kind of exploring on the topic because i mean there's just so much material out there and just the idea that the i think new york they were someone was exploring it in an article i was reading a few days ago about how in new york the the larger percentage of vegan restaurants are owned by african americans which you would, uh-huh. you would never know of course because you know if you looked at media you would think it wasn't and so like we dominate the uh-huh. space and i feel like it's just a natural place for us to fall we tend to eat more plants um then mm-hmm. then then uh animal proteins and so i just find it to like once you're doing it it just feels it just feels right it fits correct it feel it fits um and makes sense and so uh, is there um because like brian terry's vegetable kingdom is brilliant um and a handful of other like cookbook resources right now is there anything you're like looking at as far as like helping you under that's giving you a better understanding of like the vastness of the vegan space so um, I have one cookbook resource that I have dived into, and that's uh, Crossroads. Oh, okay. Um, it's amazing. I don't know anything about the author, um, but I am, whenever I cook things, I try to approach food from a fine dining aspect mm. and not casual. And so when I was looking you know, I took this consultant job. I'm like, okay, he wants me to completely revamp the menu. I can make good stuff, but let me go and look at the trends and see what's going on. Mm. And so when I look at this cookbook, I don't take it to take recipes per se, just like ideas and visuals. Okay. And um, I looked at some of the things that this author is doing, and it's pretty amazing. And um, I would love to be on the forefront of vegan fine dining. I think it's so much beauty and um, versatility in vegetables, beans, and grains without going into that fake meat aspect. Yes. I don't really like that. Ooh, that stuff is- I hate I hate that. I hate that. That, stuff is- so- that, that. It's always a little weird. It's always a little weird to be like, oh, okay, this is what we're doing. Why can't y'all just eat the vegetables? Just go ahead and eat the vegetables. Yeah. It's all right. I think just eat the vegetables. Just eat the vegetables, y'all. It's no need to do this to ourselves. Now, is it um, is it Crossroads Kitchen? It is Crossroads. I'm I'm gonna look at the book right now and Because I know there's a Crossroads <laughs> Kitchen, and they're a um a vegan fine dining restaurant. That it is Crossroads by Tal Ronan. Yeah, yep, that's them. So it's um, yep, Crossroads in um. Los Angeles, the Crossroads Kitchen in Los Angeles. And they do they okay. really do have a beautiful um I like that idea about creating a fine dining space for vegan food because there's always um while it's it's always beautifully plated, that level of refinement mm-hmm. is sometimes missing. Um, because you know, people tend to, you know, throw, you know, salads into a large, beautiful bowl or, you know, they you exactly. know, it's, it, there's never like there's never this precision or that kind of uh, technical aspect on cooking vegetables a certain way. And there's a handful of restaurants that are like really elevating it. Um, but it's just not really part of the the conversation around like veganism and vegan food and how refined and beautiful it can really be. Yes. Um, and how you can apply every single technique to that, to, to vegetables and grains as you would to yes. animal protein. And then what we can do um, to get, you know, more flavor and more nutrition out of each and every component. So I know in um, Philly, they have the uh, veg is another really beautiful restaurant um, in Philadelphia that is doing, they're not necessarily vegan, but they are, um, they center vegetables on the menu, which I find like okay. a really another great approach is that it's not necessarily like something, you know, they'll still brown butter um, for certain dishes. They'll still use mm-hmm. maybe egg in a certain dish, but everything is, um, is driven by vegetables. Like that's that, that's what, informs yeah. all of their choices and so you will rarely find anything um with that's kind of meat centric or meat focused mm-hmm. and so like i found that was just another way to it was another really cool way to kind of create a conversation around vegetables being the the larger taking up more space and more real estate on the plate and that was just another yeah. way to do it and not necessarily 
um, having to be, you know, completely vegan all the time because not everybody's going to subscribe to it. But I think it's a really cool way to create a more plant-based or plant-centric diet if you can, um, for sure. So um, now are you finding like in Louisiana, like before COVID, um, when, when you were getting out, were you finding like there, was there a large vegan culture or were people? Uh, Yeah, there's, there is a large vegan culture. There's a a big vegan soul food Mm. explosion here. Of course, with it being New Orleans, you know, they're going to add flavor to it. You know, it's not going to be just boring and bland, but I did see that trend with that, that fake meat that I don't like a lot here. It's, um, it's just something that you can't get around, especially when people are trying to imitate classic Creole food. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And my my goal, um, especially with my client now, is to move them away from the shaitan and the tofu and the TVP and make the festival the center of the plate okay and um previous experience especially from being in seattle on the west coast you know you always have to accommodate the vegans out there yes and so i i've done beautiful wine dinners at wineries where i always had to have two menus and i would make these menus pretty much identical but the vegan version would have a vegetable as the center plate. So like I would have a scallop dish for a muse and the vegan version would be an oyster mushroom scallop, you know, with basically the same, the same fixings or the same accoutrement or whatever. Yeah. And I, I had, I had mastered elevating vegan food without even thinking about it. Wow. I did it as an, I did it as an afterthought and now I'm, focusing on it beautiful and it's i love that i love that thought that it's like you were elevating food and it just so happened to be that particular that particular menu that particular plate but like it's always kind of like that idea of working towards like excellence and elevation um no matter what so so I will, uh, let's see, one last, I will ask you one last question and then I, and then I'll let you go. Um, what does, you know, what does the Black Rue Collective, what does Black Rue Farms look like in the next three years? You know, barring the madness of 2020, we will, we'll, <laughs> we'll take this as a practice year and uh, we'll do this as a trial, a trial year. And when it's time to subscribe, we will cancel the subscription <laughs> because this madness, I was like, y'all, we are six months in and it is blowing up in these streets right now. It's not. I'm just like, what it is, is not getting better. I, like, I need somebody to like refill 2020's prescription or have them have 20 to have the year 2020 see a therapist Mm -hmm. because this mess is insane but um this is uh this is 2019.2 2020 actually starts next next year year. Um, (laughs) because i did see that you were doing a trip to ghana um and that was supposed to be um happening on the 19th of this month oh my that's when it was supposed to happen okay but because of everything of course right that ain't happening okay okay (laughs) all right maybe another time maybe another time um maybe another time you know i can i'll revisit that uh when i revisit it okay Okay. um yeah yeah. we had (laughs) we had a long line of uh tours oh wow planned okay and because of what happened, it all that had to be scrapped. Oh wow! Yeah. You know, yeah. But um, with things happening the way that they did happen, I think that the universe gave me an opportunity to sit back and actually decide where I wanted to go and where I wanted to take this. I love it. I love it. And um, that that's a blessing in disguise absolutely because um community work has never been something that i thought about wow it's just not not something that i ever focused on Mm. and now it's in my sights to do that and it took uh a pandemic and a damn near race war for uh (laughs) 
It's like, okay, I'm going to sit home and focus up. I'm going to sit home and focus up. It's exactly. cool. It's cool. It's cool. Exactly. Wow. So, yeah, in in the next the next three years, um, the the farm will be a thing. It will be operational, and I'm claiming that. All right. I, 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 I want to break ground on this farm in 2021. Okay. I want to at least have the property, you know. All right. All right. Uh, and so, yeah. And now remind us where we can, like, um, port and um, just get the word out where people can send their, and ladies and gentlemen, go ahead and, you know, I, we know y'all collecting extra unemployment coins. Go ahead and drop a couple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Port the situation. So just remind us, like, where we can, like, um, get more information about what you're doing, where we can, like, follow you and, you know, just uh, get all the details on your cookbook and everything, uh, all the things. All right. So um, my Instagram has all of the information on it. Uh, my Instagram is Black Root Culinary Collective. And um, on Facebook, it's Black Root. The fundraiser is a Facebook fundraiser, and it is the Black Root Farms fundraiser. The website is www.blackrootcollective.com. Okay. And um the website is currently under construction and being revamped for the new vision because the vision is still very new. Okay. So, okay. you know, the, the old trip, the Ghana trip is still up on the website because I cried about that. Uh, <laughs> we all had something to mourn. We sure did. Yeah. Yeah. We sure did. Yeah. But it's, and that was, it's time to take that down. Yeah. But <laughs> we have to go ahead and let that go and, um, and move forward. Um, because you know, cause like I told people, we have things to do. We have some things to do. So that's Rue, Black Rue, R-O-U-X collective. Yeah. Okay. So mm-hmm. people are like, how and what and what's going on? Really? Um, black <laughs> if you are in, um, you know, after the COVID is is at least handled somehow in the next few, well, Lord knows, looking at these people not wearing a mask, we might be in the house to the end of the year. But Ooh. if people are... <laughs> Like, oh God, oh God. Now, if is there any information out there or circulating about your cookbook or are you still kind of in the early stages of that? Um, my cookbook, there is a little bit of information out there on the cookbook. I am still working on it. I am about four chapters in. Okay. Uh, so it's, it's plugging along. Um, it was something that was being constantly worked on daily until I had to take this consulting client because I didn't have any work because of the COVID. Right. Right. <laughs> and so now it's it's slowed down a little bit, but it's not stopping momentum. Okay. Um, I plan to have this cookbook done by the end of the year. All right. And the name of the cookbook is a Black Rue, a biography of provisions and pros. You know what? You better okay. I'm a yep. <laughs> I'm going to put that on my list of things to come. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) Yes, ma'am. Well, thank you so much. Um, I have been on a hiatus for a couple of months, so it's nice to come out of um, my semi-retirement and um, and just have a conversation with the tribe again. So thank you so much for carving out some time for me this morning. I appreciate it. um, I am, you know, we will, we have, I have, I don't know why I was crazy enough to schedule like 18 interviews in the next two weeks, but I'm going to do this because I don't know what, hey. what the next few weeks look like. I don't know what kind of madness is fitting to jump off, but 2020 is not going to catch me unprepared. Uh, <laughs> right. Yes, yes, you are definitely like the first in like an incredible lineup of black women who are just out here, you know, not just breaking glass ceilings, but like really building these visions um, to the sky at this point. So I appreciate you and I appreciate your work and just thank you so much. Everybody keep an eye on uh, the Black Brew Collective Instagram and Black Brew Farms. Go to the Facebook page and donate some coinage, please. And, um, but yes, yeah, sis, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening in on this week's conversation with Chef Maya. I am excited that you have joined our community of thoughtful, ambitious, and informed listeners. I love to share the stories and experiences of inspiring and passionate people. 
The Afros and Knives podcast is a listener-supported podcast. We love our community of listeners. So to become a supporter of this show, visit www.afrosandknives.com to make a donation or to find our Patreon page. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to download, subscribe, and leave a comment. I'd love to hear your feedback. Don't forget to subscribe to the newsletter so you can stay up to date on new guests and other Afros and Knives news. So until next week, may you be happy, may you be safe, may you be healthy, and may you be at peace.